0: John, I'm Paul, I'm George, and I play the drums. From pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. It's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LePret. And Chachi's co host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan.
1: Well, hello, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette, and welcome to our Beatles podcast. We're very excited today and to have our very special guest. Let's first want to introduce the co host of our program, Mr. David Gallant, the Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston. Good to have you, and Mr. Gallant. Good to see you today and thank you for joining us as well. Of course.
0: Chachi, it's always a pleasure and we we've uh, I always seem to lose time and slow down when I get into the Beatles class and we're we're finally getting through 1964 and post hard days night. So, we're making that interesting turn after meeting Bob Dylan. We all know what that means.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we do want to, we are on the Boston Podcast Network. And our producer in studio with us is David Yaz. But as I said, we have a very, very special guest today. Mr. Jay Bergen is a trial lawyer in New York City for 45 years, handling entertainment cases, antitrust, securities. And for our podcast, Today's Situation, it's a copyright and trademark attorney because Mr. Bergen found himself in the position to represent John Lennon in his lawsuit against Morris Levy. and. Jay is the author of a really, really great, fantastic new book called Lenin, the Mobster and the Lawyer, the Untold Story, published by DeVault Graves Books, available wherever fine books are sold. And you can visit Jay's website, Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer.com. And we welcome today on our, pro- our podcast, Mr. Jay Berg. And hello, Jay. Thank you very much. Hello, Jaja, Jaji, and uh, David Gallant. I appreciate uh, the
2: introduction. The- Opportunity to be on your show and to talk to all your, your listeners.
1: Well, we're very excited. I love the book from the front to the back, enjoyed every page of it. And I'll begin by saying that it's a book that music fans should read. Professor, many firsthand stories are just going by the wayside. Now it's five, 10th removed, so many through the years. And it's really great nowadays to talk to someone who was first person right there for the in the situation in this case with John Lennon so it's always nice to have firsthand recollections right david
0: when when you're <clears throat> when you're presenting yourself or have to be within a an arena or a culture of litigation you hear people talk differently than you've heard them chronicled before, and people have chronicled what John Lennon had said and what he did in certain places, but it's a different thing to hear how he is dealing with a court case. So you hear very different things about him, you get a very different sense of him from Jay's book, and and that alone I think makes it fascinating to me. You hear Lennon talk, and you hear him have opinions on things that he normally wouldn't be sharing if he was being asked directly about what he was producing on an album, though that's part of it, or what he thinks socially or politically. What he actually thinks about a court case and how he defends himself and his art um, is really fascinating because we know that he's not just saying it to a reporter. He's saying it as possibly entered evidence in a court of law. And I think that really makes it fascinating.
1: Well, we're very excited to have you here with us, Jay. And let's start at at the very beginning because you saw The Beatles at Forest Hills. I have a mutual friend who was at that show. He went on a date and he thought the screaming was so loud he wanted to leave and he left his date there who enjoyed the show and he left the show, but you were there. Well, I the- was there, yes. That's right.
2: Yes, with my uh, uh, with an ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was
1: that like to see the Beatles in concert? Well,
2: I mean, first of all, it was at the Forest Hills Stadium with only maybe 16,000 people there. So, and yeah, was it loud? Yes, it was loud, but I don't remember that. I remember the experience of seeing them, uh, first of all, watching them land in a helicopter on one of the back tennis courts and then finding their way to the, the main uh, tennis court where the U.S. Open play was played before it got so fancy and expensive, and everybody was a professional. So it was—it was just. I mean, this was this was shortly they had been on the uh, Ed Sullivan Show. This was in August of '64, and you know, there was such a buzz about them that even the even the fact that I got the tickets was uh, was kind of amazing.
1: And certainly, your book, "Lenin, the Mobster and the Lawyer," you represented John, the mobster in question, was more a But what I found even more fascinating, and John did too, was the fact that you saw Elvis in concert. Wow! Yes, I, 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 I saw
2: the real Elvis. <laughs> Real Elvis. And this was 1950 in April in Philadelphia in a place called the Arena, which was a, a minor league hockey arena. So that's, it was shaped like a, like a hockey rink. And as I told John and as I tell the story, I saw an ad in the New York Herald Tribune. I sent away for two tickets. I think they cost $3.50 each. I got the tickets. And I was living at the do- in the dorm at uh, Fordham College in the Bronx. And I couldn't get anybody to go with me. I mean, John John was completely appalled at that, that I. <laughs> and, then, and then he said to me, "And and you went alone?" I said, "Well, of course, I had the ticket. I'm going. I I'm, I had never been to Philadelphia. I found my way there by a bus, and uh, yeah."
0: Wow! What Check, I can see why he's fascinated. Lennon was fascinated because he never got to see Elvis. He only saw Elvis in his living room in Beverly Hills or in, in, in the Hollywood Hills when they got to meet him in 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 60s. Yeah. So I'm sure he was very jealous of Jay that uh, he actually got to see Elvis perform. As he says, right, the real Elvis. That was always a disappointment to the Beatles when Elvis became too famous and Hollywoodized and everything where Jay saw him in his dangerous phase.
2: Yes. And that, that's exactly what uh, John and I talked about. And John said to me, the first time I heard Elvis sing Heartbroke Hotel, I knew what I wanted to do. Wow. that, that that's, that's where he was at that point.
1: Well, let's start at the beginning here. In the mid-early 70s, you were an attorney in New York City. As I said, handling cases in the entertainment world, and you handled some famous bands and people, and you had the ability, had the chance to represent John Lennon, and what did you think at that point? I know that the story begins when you were were told to go to Capitol Records, and John Lennon walked into a meeting with the lawyers, and you weren't expecting him there.
2: Well, I didn't. All I knew was that I had heard a rumor around my firm that there was something about a a John Bootleg album that was possibly going to come out. And I said to my partner, David Dolgenis, who was John's lawyer, if there's anything, anything happens there in terms of litigation, I'd like to be involved. So David called down to his office on February 3rd, which was a Monday. He handed me this letter from Morris Levy on, oh, I didn't know who Morris Levy was, on Roulette Records' stationery, and it claimed that John had made an agreement with him to, to make 16 tracks of old rock and roll songs that Morris, through his company, Adam Limited, could, meet, could market on TV on a worldwide basis. And uh, David handed me the letter and said, would you go to this meeting at 5 o'clock at Capitol and see if, you know, see if we can find out what's going on. So over I went. The lawyers at Capitol hadn't seen the letter. I gave them copies. I brought extra copies. And as we were, as they were explaining what they knew about uh, the ringers that were beginning to fly around, that Morris was going to start advertising on TV, where you send in your 498 and get this album, this bootleg, the conference room door opened and John Lennon walked in and
1: I was stunned. i seeing the Beatles when you were a kid and then there you are with John and look what I happen to have, my copy of the Roots Ooh, album. You do. You do. <laughs> yeah, do. It, was, it was a gift. And I mean, remember those days you could order an album and you get it COD and you give the postman the money. Yes, for the record, and so here's my Roots album that I have, and I always thought it was strange. Look at the, the the photo on the front, and advertising the Solid Hits album on the back, and so yeah, here's my Roots album, Professor. Now
2: the other thing, Chachi, turn it sure. around, turn it around again, because, and I'm sure you've noticed it. No, turn it to the back, because yeah. there, each one of those old rock and roll songs has John Lennon's name next to it. There is no credit given to the writers. I never noticed that that is true look at that and, and so yeah and, and so people who weren't alive when you know in the 50s or, or listening to the old rock and roll songs would might think well wait a minute john lennon wrote each one of these songs <laughs> and that was that was one of the points that came out during the during the trial yes uh, professor but yeah. John, john introduced himself and we all said hello and introduced him. And we started talking about what John knew. And all John knew was that he had heard through May Pang, his assistant slash uh, girlfriend, when he, was during, when he was out in Los Angeles during his so-called lost weekend, that Morris had called May Pang and said, I'm going to put out this album. Tell John if he wants to remix anything, he can do it. And John was very upset because he knew that the, uh, the, the tapes that he had given to Morris, the seven and a half IPS tapes, were a rough mix of the album. And he was afraid that Morris was going to put that out, and that would sound awful. It would be terrible.
0: Chachi, but- a, a couple of things. since. I'll always treat this like an instructor. Class is in session for our podcast. And I'll I'll channel our our producing guru, Mr. Yaz, that, of course, displaying the Roots album doesn't work so great for radio because our audience isn't going to see what you're looking at. But I encourage them. I encourage them to take a look online what that Roots album looks like, because Jay's book is very, very particular in noting John's comments to the point where, I didn't. He didn't even like the picture of himself on the cover. It was an old, crappy picture, and so it it made him look silly. And that was one thing that he objected to: it, his visual representation. And yes, the songs on the back all say John Lennon, which is quite ironic, right, Jay? Given the fact that. Morris Levy pushed his name onto Chuck Berry's (laughs) songwriting credits in a lot of things, when he had nothing to do with many of those Chuck Berry songs and other songs of those artists. But Morris Levy has some odd songwriting credit. But I guess I want our, our audience to know the context of that John really was upset that, in his mind, this piece of crap, Not only would get out there, would but would be sold and marketed in this particularly offensive way to him as well, right? And nothing that was sanctioned. But Jay, just so you can sort of explain to our audience, would Morris Levy had been so emboldened because technically he did win a case before against John regarding the lyrics to come together. Well, he didn't.
2: He didn't win that case, David, because it was on the brink of a trial in in October nineteen seventy three. And John was just beginning the recording with uh, Crazy Phil Spector in Los Angeles of this rock and roll album. And he wanted to sing these oldies because he wanted to sing someone else's songs, not his songs or not a Beatles songs. And these were all songs that he grew up listening to. Right. And uh, as you said, you both read the book, he testified about the reasons why he wanted to record each one of those songs. But the the come together lawsuit was about to come to trial, so I believe Harold Sider, who was John's business advisor, called him in Los Angeles and said, "You've got to come back to New York because of this trial." And John said, "I'm worked. I can't do two things at the same time. I'm working. Settle it." So the okay. settlement. Right. So the settlement was that that he. John, on that album, which was supposed to be the rock and roll album, would sing three of Morris Levy's songs. One of them had to be You Can't Catch Me, owned right. by his, his publishing company. So what happened was that then Phil Spector disappeared with the tapes, the master tapes. They didn't get them back until July of 74, when John was about to record Rolls and Bridge, a recording of his his songs. Right. His written songs. And- so
0: there was a settlement that yeah. some of these songs would be, would actually get more, would actually get, leave you some royalties. One of them, a Chuck Berry song, famously, where John Lifstile, that is in You Can't Catch. But he certainly did not agree to... dirty tracks being out there and everything else. But that is sort of at the heart of it, that there was at least a settlement that, okay, we're in a very, very different time concerning intellectual property, as you well know, in the digital age, the fact that something like that would have been either signed off on or even lifted, and someone would have thought of it as a tribute and not brought suit, or that bootlegs now are always official. (laughs) There's very little that's actually a bootleg anymore, right? And so it was a very different time, which I think readers would really, really appreciate about your book that even what they know of as, as music and cutting and sampling is a very different legal world now than it was back then. But it's a, it's a great sort of historical read to understand even some of the changes in, in what we know of as intellectual property.
2: Well, and that, and that settlement was read right into the court record by the judge who was going to try it. And it turned out that by coincidence, total coincidence, it was the judge who ultimately signed. Who who was assigned to the Levy case several years later.
0: And Levy interposing his name on songwriting credits on some Chuck Berry songs. That is really the mobster mentality in him. Do you think?
2: Oh, oh, definitely. Because Morris figured out very early, and I I, I read this in some maybe the the book that was called The Godfather about him, uh, the Godfather of the record business was. He suddenly realized very early around the time, I think, that he opened the Birdland Jazz Club on Times Square in 1949 with mob money, by the way, that music publishing uh, could be a real goldmine. And Yaya, if you look at the credits for uh, who the songwriters are of Yaya, Morris put his name on with Lee Dorsey and two other men who were the co-writers. And he did that a lot particularly with with black songwriters who didn't realize what was going on. And therefore, he would he would siphon off some of the royalties.
0: Chachi, this is why in that great documentary with, about uh, Chuck Berry, when he would go and get paid for gigs, it was all in cash. And he would always tell people, if you go to college, major in mathematics first... <laughs> And then learn an instrument afterwards because he had been burned so many times. Right. And, and right. I think that maybe Morris Levy was one of the chief arsonists when it came to that burning. Right. Yeah.
1: And J has a lot of roots in Boston with strawberries records. In fact, my lovely bride, Stephanie worked at strawberries for a number of years in the final days of Morris, as the management ownership changed a dear friend of mine who I worked at at WBCN was friends with Morris for years. And I would say that a number of years in my uh, working at WBCN, I'd get a yearly invitation to a big barbecue at his farm. And he would have buses, take all the employees. And every year I said, no, I don't want to go. And I look back now and I regret not going up to the farm. And I I found it interesting. He would persist and ask John to come to the farm and practice there. And John gave in and said, "You find okay, stop asking. I'm going out to the farm. And I found that interesting that John gave in. Well,
2: Gachi uh, and David, uh, one of the things I learned in spending time with John was that he did not like saying no to people. It was very hard for him to do that. He was very shy, first of all. And secondly, he did not want to appear to be rude by saying, and Morris kept asking him over and over again, bring the band up and to the farm. And one of the excuses he used that I talk about in in the case in the the book is that, well, I can't go this weekend because I'm going out to Montauk to visit my friend uh, Mick Jagger. Well, come next weekend. Well, anyhow, he finally, he finally gave in and and went up there. Yes. And I really it the same way with why he, he wound up giving Morris the two reel to reel unfinished seven and a half IPS tapes of the album on November 14th. 1974 before it was finished Morris kept hounding him when am I going to be able to listen my to my three songs I want to listen to my three songs and finally John as as to, to quote you he gave up he gave in okay what do you want well I want two reel to reels and when when he told when John told Harold Sider what he had done his business advisor at the time
1: Harold said I wish you hadn't done that. <laughs> well, I, I, I really thought what I enjoyed about your book is seeing the human side of John, having dinner lunches with him and meeting people on the streets of New York and certainly how he was so artistic and how he put his music together. He, he learned those studio tricks at a young age, of course, with George Martin. By the time of the 70s, he knew the ins and outs of a recording studio, how to make records, how to hire musicians, how to deal with them and your your book had such a, a interesting look into John as a human being and I really enjoyed that. Well,
2: that's as David said in the, in in the beginning there when he when he was talking. That's one of the principal reasons I wrote this book. Because this was a time in John Lennon's life when he had dropped out of the music business. He got back with Yoko. She got pregnant. He was happy. He was chilled out. And he, and he was really dedicated to defending this law, even though both he and Yoko told me on more than one occasion, Jay, all we want to do is hold down the amount of money that John is going to owe Morris. And uh, my response to that was, if I have anything to say about it or do about it, you're not going to owe, John is not going to owe Morris uh, anything.
1: But that he, he just dug his heels in. What was interesting is that he would think that he would lose, because when you read your book, when John testifies, it's all from the heart and it's all fact. When Morris testifies, it's totally fiction with this guy. I mean, he couldn't keep a story straight, I thought, uh, my impression of it all. And how could you believe anything Morris Levy says? Well, one of the things I learned early in
2: in my legal career was that the fact— are are often the key to a case. You have to understand the facts. You've got to get the facts down, and let's worry about the law, what the law says later on. But <laughs> that's why I spent so much time with John, and then I also spent time with uh, with Harold Cider and May Pang because they were the three principal witnesses, at least, to this alleged agreement that was crafted by Morris Levy out of thin air in a In a nightclub restaurant on October 8th, 1974, when he met with John. So the facts were were key here. And I see David's got his hand up there. Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) I I, I I got to recognize one of my other uh, points in my career. I was a, I I taught argument and advocacy and and intercollegiate debate. I was a debate coach. And so when I'm reading your book, Jay, in terms of a case, there's like a fact dead center in the middle And it's not that I felt, when I saw that, I was like, well, it's over. Morris Levy doesn't have a chance. He's just hoping against hope for some reason. And that fact is basically John saying over and over again, look, I can't do anything with any music I've ever done unless Capitol Records says so. (laughs) Right? Unless Capitol with EMI. Exactly. Unless they say so, there's nothing that is done legally. And- They didn't put any imprimatur on this at all. And at that point, I thought, what is Levy trying to accomplish then? If he can't get around that fact, it's rock solid. Now, the rest of the book, I also think is great because I see it and I read it as not just about the court case, not just about John, but I see it as also a great chronicle of that time and place in New York City, like someone who's going to read Pete Hamill, someone who's going to read Jimmy Breslin. So sorry, Jay, I'm putting you in that line, if that's okay.
2: Well, (laughs) look... (laughs) <laughs> I spent a lot of time reading Jimmy Breslin in the Old Herald Tribune, and about 10 feet away from me in the bedroom is uh, a collection of Pete Hamill stories. There you go. Yes. And so
0: if, you're, if, if anyone is, has read those authors and read those writers and those journalists, Jay's book is also a chronicle of that time in, in New York City. You get to know where, where out of court. Where did people go to lunch? What did they have? Yes, the focus happens to go through this case with John Lennon, but you learn a lot about that time as well. But so, Jay, like you were talking to Chachi about, does did Morris just forget that fact that is dead center in the middle that if Capital and EMI doesn't sign off on anything, it's not real in a sense.
2: Let, let me let me tell you my my theory that I can came up with early in the case because that night. At the Club Cavalero, John made it very clear to Morris Levy, I'm with EMI, whatever whatever I say they own. And they kept saying to, to Morris, if we're going to do this, he and, and Harold Sider, we have to get EMI's permission. And, and Morris kept saying, well, when are you going to go to England? Or when are you going to contact England and, and get the permission? So he knew that. And... And everybody in the music industry knew at this time in 1974 that the Beatles had been signed exclusively individually and together to EMI Records since the early 1960s. My theory is that Morris thought that once he got his on on the, the tapes, that he would be able to somehow deal with John and EMI and Capitol. In fact, at one point in January, Harold Sider said to him, Capitol wants to hear the, uh, the the album, and we've sent them a cassette. And And I quote this uh, in the book. Morris said, uh-oh, that's not good. <laughs> because because <laughs> Morris knew in his heart of hearts that Capitol was going to say, look, we're not going to sell this album on TV like some collection of, of uh, right. Re- reruns. Right. We're going to sell this the way we've sold every John Lennon and every Beatles album premium product only. And then when he gets to the point, when he gets to the point that he releases the album, Capital, about a week or 10 days later, on February 13th of 75, releases the official album. He pulls. The advertising having sold twelve hundred and seventy copies, <laughs> and it's about ten days later that he files the first case in in uh, New York Supreme Court, alleging breach of contract, fraud, et cetera. I believe that Morris thought John John would try to settle because he settled the Come Together case right several years before and. Since Morris had named Capital and EMI as defendants, then he'd be able to maneuver some kind of a deal. When he didn't get any reaction from anybody, about two weeks later, he files this ridiculous antitrust case seeking $14 million in damages from John, Capital, EMI, Harold Sider, and Apple Records. And I I think that was another kind of arrow he was shooting up in the air, hoping that they would all, that they'd come to their senses and say, okay, let's see if we can do a deal with
0: Mars. But in the music industry at that point, between Apple, EMI, and Capitol, they are the music mobsters who will out-mobster the mobster any day of the week, especially in court. Yes.
2: I just think, Mar- as he said to Harold on January 30th at a meeting in his office, when Harold went to him and said, look, Capitol wants to put this out. EMI has said, we've got to put this out. And Morris said to him, after playing, after pushing the, his uh, tape recorder and John suddenly singing, you can't catch me in the background, he said to him, I d- said to Harold, I'm going to put it out. I got a shot. <laughs> I got a shot. In other words, this is Morris, the grifter. Morris was one of those people, if, if you could do something the right way or the wrong way, He would always do it the the illegal way,
0: which I don't know why he felt he he needed to grift at that point. Chachi, when I had read and it hadn't really hit me that he was he was Strawberries Records and Tapes. And I felt so bad because before the advent of Newberry Comics, man, I put a lot of money in that guy's pocket. (laughs) We we, when in Boston in college. We lived at Strawberries, buying concert tickets, albums, everything. It was just it was one right in downtown crossing right near campus. Man, we lived there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did as well. Midnight Madness sale. Oh, please. Always spending money at strawberries. Branched out into the suburbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep.
2: That was but, a very successful ch- uh, chain. Wasn't oh, yes. It? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Very,
1: very successful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Stephanie worked there for a long time. And so, yeah, I enjoyed strawberries. We're going to take a minute right now to tell you about another podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called
0: Past Tens, a top 10 time machine. That's right, Chachi. Tens, as in T-E-N-S. Your host, David Yaz, and the chartmeister, Michael miltwolves travel back in time to revisit the top 10 hits on the Billboard charts on a given day in the past. Sometimes the songs hold up nicely, other times they make you cringe, and that's when comedy and chaos ensue on Past Tense.
1: You know, David, I think the best episode was when they went back to 1964 because the list was packed with Beatles songs and also because those bozos, Milt and Dave, respectively, had the good sense to have us on that episode to school them on all
0: things Beatles. I agree, Chachi. That was a fantastic episode, probably their best. But also check out the episode where I filled in for Milt. It spared the audience the usual allotment of milk fart jokes. You'll have to listen to it to what other types of bodily function jokes are put in.
1: I had no idea that you were a guest host. I feel offended and betrayed, but I have to admit, for a couple of knuckleheads, these guys put on a fantastic show. It's past tens to a top ten time machine. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts or visit timemachinepod.com. That's timemachinepod.com. I thought Morris's attorneys were kind of shifty as well. I loved how you and John would make fun of the clenched teeth of the attorney talking to the judge. And I, I thought that the, Morris's attorneys made a big mistake in getting the judge to recuse himself and put a new judge in. Because the new judge turned out to be a musician interested in the process that John and the Beatles had in making records. Well, I thought that was a bad move.
2: Well, you've you've put your finger right on uh, one of the key one of the key moments in the in the case because Morris's testimony on direct was going in the in the first case with this Judge McMahon, and the other thing I have to go back and just emphasize: cases in New York Supreme Court, state court, go very very slowly. But filing the case in federal court was a fatal mistake because cases in the federal court get immediately assigned to one judge for, quote, all purposes. That means that judge is going to, is going to handle the entire case from start to finish. And with the luck of the draw, the case that was, that was assigned to Judge Lloyd McMahon, I knew Judge McMahon. He'd been on the bench for 16 years. And he put up with no nonsense in the courtroom and had one of the fastest calendars in the courthouse and I told that to John. I said, "This case is going to move quickly and that was that was the, the the real blunder and Then, when we got before Judge McMahon and we had a jury, Morris's testimony was terrible as as you were observed earlier. this guy couldn't tell the truth, and he couldn't keep the story straight, and that was probably because. William Shirtman, his lawyer, had not been involved in the case until right before the trial. He turned it over to a young, a younger partner, and that was—I don't know why that was done. I, I don't understand that because you can't try a case if you're just going to walk in and, with only working two or three works on, two, two or three weeks on it. You have to. I could have tried that case in my in my sleep because I lived it. I lived it for that whole period, and Morris was, and I think what happened was that, as you pointed out, he probably deliberately, he deliberately created this situation with the judge, where the judge wound up calling him a liar and recusing himself, and we had a mistrial, so we had no jury. I think he then thought, okay, this will be put off for some, you know, until they get another judge, and then we'll have to start all over again. And it'll take months and months and months.
1: That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Were you concerned when Morris's attorneys brought up John's other albums, like Life with the Lions and Two Virgins and The Wedding Album? But John described these are artistic endeavors. This is not just an album of no music on it. But they were, their angle was, look at these albums that John put out that have no music and why is he worried about roots well again they, they
2: didn't anticipate what was going to happen with john because we had we had talked about that and we had this ju- judge Griset, who as as you mentioned was a classical musician played the harpsichord in a, a classical music music group and he wanted to understand everything about john lennon's career and his albums, including including the, the avant-garde albums. And, you know, he was a musician. And John, John and I, when we found out he was a musician the night before the the second trial started, the next morning I said to John, we're going to have to give him a tut- your music, some of the Beatles' music, and how you produce a record and how you, as John testified, how How you and the Beatles quote learned the trade and that and that's what we did and if you if you anybody looks at that one photo that Bob Gruen took uh in the courtroom, John is looking directly at the judge with his hand out pointing towards him, and the judge is sitting there he has his hand on his uh, on his right cheek, and they would have these colloquies that went back and forth where the judge would pepper John with questions and Shirtman is standing right in the middle of that photo. He would jump up and down and object because he knew that these colloquies were just deadly. They were deadly because the judge was getting
1: completely wrapped in John's music. Yeah, I totally see that completely. And for a minute, let's, let's shift to Yo, because professor galant and i have a friend named roger farrington who was hired by yoko to take the first pictures of john going into the double fantasy sessions and she needed to have roger's birthday month day year time so she could approve him to work with them and you went through the same not necessarily the birthday but you had to go through the yoko ono test and you went to the dakota and you did the test and you were, what was that like? And ultimately, we all know you were approved. But then the other point is, if you can comment on both, she came in one day and said, something's going to happen today. I swore me, I know that something's going to change in the court today. And you were like, no, nothing's going to change. So if you can comment on those, would be great.
2: Well, about a month after the, I met John and the both cases had been filed, John called me and said, can you come up to the Dakota tomorrow and meet Yoko? She wants to meet you. And I said, sure, should I bring anything? And John said, no, 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 just come up. She wants to meet you. So I went up, sat in the living room, uh, this big living room overlooking Central. John was not there. I didn't see John at all. It was just Yoko and Jay. And she questioned me very close about the lawsuits. She had obviously read both of the complaints. She was really interested. Very smart. And after about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes, finally she said, Well, I'm very glad to meet you. Thank you for coming up. We stood, stood up, shook hands, uh, and I laughed. It, it may sound very naive, uh, but it was years before I realized that that was an audition. That if I, and she didn't ask me if my birthday or I didn't know any of that, that hocus pocus that she loved, you know, the, the astrology and the birthday and, and all of that. And, and, I didn't think about the fact that if she hadn't liked me, I would have been out. She would have told John, call call David Dalgis and get somebody else. This guy isn't the one you want.
0: Chachi, I think that that Yoko could play the hocus pocus, as Jay is saying, but she was very smart, and I'm sure that she did. because Jay's work would all have been, most of it, a matter of public record. And I'm sure Yoko did her homework (laughs) for this interview and could tell his his body of work and, and could look up any facts and figures on him from the New York Bar Association, which would all have been out there published. And she would have had someone go to the public library, the courthouse library, and go through the records and then maybe at the end say, I hired Jay because he could name the particular gust of wind that came through the window, (laughs) whatever it was. Right. But I think Jay's right too. I think that she was very strategic about playing the, the hocus pocus, but at the same time doing all of that smart homework and all of those things that, shall we say, kept the life of the Dakota organized that John just didn't have necessarily a mind for. He would always defer to Yoko on that, you know, and (laughs) He, he, wasn't, he wasn't interested in it.
2: <laughs> now, when I interviewed Klaus Foreman uh, a couple of months before the trial started, Klaus, who had not known John since Hamburg, he said, John's very naive about business. He, he really is not interested and he's naive about it. But to go back to Chachi's question about the second day of the trial, John and Yoko would come in the morning. Limo would be downstairs. They'd come up to the office. And John said, Yoko has something to tell you. I looked at Yoko and she said, I consulted my Swami last night and he said, the trial is going to be interrupted today. And I thought to myself, oh, a Swami, now I'm dealing, now I'm dealing with a Swami. <laughs> and so I asked her again, what he said. She repeated the same thing. John would not look at me. And after a, kind of a a, one of those pregnant pauses i realized i wasn't going to learn anything more except i did say to her there's no reason why the trial trial would be interrupted today and this judge he doesn't like interruptions so he's going to just keep moving and as as you pointed out there was an interruption it was an interruption and we lost the trial we lost the jury and the judge
1: and so what was your thought at the end of the day it's like oh my god yoko was right
2: (laughs) When when I came back up to the courtroom, I told John and Yoko to, to wait there because I want to go down and see the chief judge. And I dragged all the lawyers along with me and I dictated a memo since he was out to lunch and asked for a new judge. And I came back up and I explained that to them. And then Yoko said something like, oh, Jesus, this, this shouldn't have happened. This is not good. And John said to her, Yoko, Jay's in charge. And I told them, go home. I'll call you as soon as we hear anything. I said, I think we'll hear something soon. And actually, we heard something at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and we started the trial the next day.
1: Unbelievable. And I want to talk just briefly, because we're kind of running out of time, but I'm talk- I want to talk just briefly. You mentioned Klaus Vorman. You had witnesses like Jesse Ed Davis and and some others, and you went to a recording studio where Ringo was recording, and Ringo expressed concern about John with this lawsuit and you guys talked about it, right?
2: Yes. I went out to California. I told John that I wanted to interview some of the witnesses, the the band, and I was going to use one or two of them as witnesses because I I knew that Morris was going to bring up this whole thing about the farm. And so I I interviewed Klaus and Jim Keltner, but they were at Sunset Sound and they were working with Ringo and uh, Harry Nilsson and something. And when I walked in and I introduced myself to the two of them, Ringo was, was very concerned about John. How is he, how is he doing and everything? And he and Harry seemed to know, you know, something about Morris's uh, reputation. And I said, John's fine. He's, he's in really good shape. He's excited about uh, Sean being born. And this was in October. And, but the one thing that isn't in the book that I, but I'll tell you is I also interviewed Bobby, the, the great sax player. Yeah. And. I saw him before I went to see Keltner and, uh, and Klaus Foreman and Bobby, who I'm sure you will all remember started out in Texas with Buddy Knox and the rhythm of playing sax. But, uh, and one of the things that, that Bobby said to me was, Jay, I do not want Morris Levy to hear my name. He knew from the Bobby, from the, the early rock and roll days with uh buddy knox and the rhythm orchids he knew morris's reputation he said i don't want him to hear my name so i mean i, I wasn't going to use him as a witness but because he wasn't at the farm he wasn't in the recording studio with with john he came in later and laid down some of the uh, the uh, tracks but so that that's the way that that went and i picked best jesse ed because i thought he was so bright and had such a great sense of humor and then the other one i
1: used was eddie motto who played uh, rhythm guitar mm-hmm. acoustic wow i mean such an interesting story i love when you took john to sloppy Louie's for lunch and they only ate fish What what was it like having lunch with john lennon and just being you know the human being, John, not the, not the entertainer. And I know he wanted you to sit with your back to the wall. So he would have his back to the people behind him. But what were some of those experiences like, like when the woman thought he was George Harrison? I mean, great stories.
2: Well, that's, that's one of the, as I said earlier, that's one of the reasons, uh, Chachi and David, that I really want, wanted to write this book because I wanted people to know who John was at this time. And the Sloppy Louis thing came out because the first day of the trial, we got in the limo and I said to John, what do you want to eat? And he said, we're only eating fish. So I asked the limo driver would you take us down near the old Fulton Fish Market on the East River because I knew that there was some really wonderful seafood restaurants there. We pulled in front and pulled up in front of Sloppy Louis. That's where we, there were several others there but we pulled right up in front of Sloppy Louis. We went in there, very plain, nothing fancy about Sloppy Louis but the food was was excellent. And it was it was kind of a big hangout also of the Wall Street crowd. So the place was always crowded. We sat at that table. The picture that's in the book of us. Uh, I did. I didn't know Bob Gruen, but John asked him to come down and take a picture of us, and he took two pictures, I think. And I got a copy of uh, one of the one of the pictures a couple of weeks later. And John wanted us to have this as a souvenir. So, but I'm, I'm not sure how we wound up eating there every day the 20 days that john and yoko came to the trial but
1: it was just kind of automatic yeah what i loved is the fact that he loved to have credit cards he had a peter luga card he had all kinds of cards i mean it's so interesting these are the stories that we don't know about john the 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 human side of him i thought that was great he loved cards yes i always ask for one he said
2: and 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 one of the the great stories, I thought, was that when the day after the meeting with Morris Levy in October, the next day was October 9th, and he invited Morris to come down to the record plant so he could hear some of the, the Spectre tapes. Well, that was John's birthday. And the people at the record plant, you know, sprung this surprise party on him with one of these giant hero sandwiches. And... Remember in the book how John testifies that I I, I don't like celebrating my. I, everybody else wants to celebrate it, but I just kind of grit my teeth or something something similar
1: to that and wait wait until it's over. Wow! And then we're not final moments, Professor, I'll, I'll get let you ask another question or two. But it took you a long time to write the book, Jay. I mean, it, it, it's many years. You I guess you finally decided to write it. Did you contact Yoko to tell her you're going to write a book and how has it been? I know you went to Beetlefest and what's the reception been like for you? I I
2: did I did write to her before I, I when I was when I was writing the book. And I also was doing this live show, a multimedia show, and I wrote her a handwritten letter and I said I'd like to come up to New York, I'm living in North Carolina, and just tell you what I'm going to do and I never heard from her. But about a month later, this was right before Christmas 2017, where I'd been starting to write the book a few months earlier. And I finally got a, an email from a lawyer saying, Yoko, got your letter. She's not doing interviews. Well, I hadn't asked for an interview. I wasn't going to. She wishes you luck, and uh, she would like to see before you show it to somebody else. Well, there was no way I was going to do that because, first of all, there's no gossip in this book. Mm-hmm. This, book this book has a completely different purpose and I didn't want to get involved with with Yoko and lawyer reviewing the book and all of that so that that never happened so I've never I've never heard from a Yoko or yeah. or Sean or the lawyer complaining
1: about the book or anything I don't know well, there's nothing to complain about in the book. It's such a fantastic read. David Gallant, in, in our final moments, anything you'd like to ask or say?
0: Uh, Chachi, a lawyer's not going to write a spurious tome that's going to subject himself to a lawsuit. And uh, 90% of it is his gloss over stuff that is absolute public record. So there's there's nothing really to, to debate there. I think, it, again, it's a fantastic historical slice of New York at that time and a different side of John Lennon. I think it might also inspire folks to go back and listen to the real rock and roll album. It's got that that great photo. I think Jürgen Vollmer took that in that's in Hamburg. Right. Yeah. He and that's the basis of that great statue on Matthew Street in Liverpool of John in the doorway. And so it's such a great with the out of focus in the, in the front there. So I encourage uh, people to do that as well as read Jay's book as a companion piece while they're listening to the rock and roll album
2: well it's a it's a great album really It, it got some of the some of the critics didn't like it but that's to be expected when you have somebody of john's stature who is covering each one of those songs was a classic not only a song but a classic record at its time so i think dave marsh when i used him on the counterclaims as an expert he did a terrific job and actually his his
1: letter analyzing the two the two albums is is on my website. Yes, and I thought his testimony was fantastic. It was a great idea to have Mosh uh, testify.
2: Yeah, and yeah, you know, Chachi when he said John gave a whole new meaning to Peggy Sue, uh, and uh, you've got to listen to this one last story guy even though it's yeah. in the book. But after the case was over, Judge Judge Grisset's law clerk contacted me and said the judge is about to have his fifth anniversary. We're we're having him on the bench, we're giving him a dinner. He would love to have a copy of each one of the albums. The the Roots album and the rock and roll. And I said, fine, I, I can get that. And after after the dinner, she contacted me and she said, Judge, the judge was thrilled with the albums. And it turned out that Peggy Sue was one of his favorite songs, and now he can listen to it to his heart's content. That, that is fantastic. And, and, uh, and one more thing. Yes. Three years, I would bump into Judge Brise at Bar Association dinners or something. He would approach me with this big smile, his hand out, and say,
1: oh, Mr. Bergen, my favorite case. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, that is fantastic! The book is called "Lennon: The Mobster and the Lawyer," from Devault Book of Devault Graved Books, and it's written by Jay Bergen. And what an interesting read! And what I love too is, is not a ton of you know. There's no legalese that you have to sift through. Lawyers speak. It was, it was written very nicely. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I read it very quickly. I thought it was such a fantastic read, and to see John with all of his interesting nuances in recording an album we never have side one and side two more than 20 minutes long and and that was true when you listen to his albums i had no idea that that was even an issue you know
2: well and that's why i that's why i put david and john that's why i put some of his key testimony so that hopefully readers would be able to kind of hear hear john's voice these things, explaining why he did the avant-garde albums, explaining the whole process of that one great little story he tells about when he was explaining to the judge that after they played some of the basic tracks, after they finished one song, he would say to the, to the band, uh, does anybody have any secrets? Does anybody have any, have any hit notes that they didn't tell me? <laughs> you know, bad notes? Like, you know, I mean, that's that's classic stuff.
1: Classic stuff. And you had said in your book that he was, John Lennon was the best witness you ever had. True? Yes, he was. He was because we spent a lot
2: of time going over it and John was very smart and uh, had a great sense, great sense of humor. And he was able to handle cross-examination by
1: Levy's lawyer with uh, very little problems. Uh, Good I for him and for the book. And John is missed every day. It's it's unbelievable where we are today because uh, life would be different if John was still with us. I tell you, that's for sure. It would be. Yeah, it It, sure would. It would be. I really believe that. Yeah, me too. Jay Bergen, such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on our podcast, Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi Laprette. You can hear New England's Breakfast with the Beatles heard in three New England states. Professor Gallant, fantastic uh, episode today. And we thank you. We thank Jay Bergen. And uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode of Get Back to the Beatles. Jay, a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lapret at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.